The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Thank you, Ben, for overselling me. (laughs) And good morning to you all. Good to see you all. So, I I got an email early in the summer, or well, more appropriately late spring, I guess, from Brett saying, hey, do you want to come out and speak to us all at The Springs? And I said, absolutely, I would love that. And I, I read feverishly through the rest of that email. All right, what's my topic going to be? Confession. Oh. <laughs> Can we go to the first slide there? Yeah. Because this is my thought. I don't know about you all. <laughs> I had no problem, no hurdles to overcome in that invitation to speak to the Springs. You all are one of my favorite churches I know a good number of you uh, uh, from various places, but uh, but that topic, confession, I will confess to you that I don't think I have spoken at all on confession, in in a sermon at least. Uh, That's my bad, perhaps. But I I wanna uh, address the elephant in the room uh, so that we can all ease into this sermon together. I will not be asking any of you to confess your deepest, darkest sins today. So I can, I can already feel <laughs> that weight lightning, right? Whew, I will not have you turn to your neighbor and dig in deep and just pull forth some really dark shadow. Not gonna happen today. Largely because I don't believe in that method. I don't think that is productive. Uh, but that's what I wanna address today. What is confession? Why are we so scared of it? Maybe I'm presuming too much, but, but I think if my own experience with that, that word uh, is, is anything like your own, so I'm going to make some assumptions about the universal human experience, I would imagine that that is a word that has touches of fear connected with it. And perhaps because in the history of Christianity, largely speaking, all right, a long, complicated history, uh, we have not always done the best that we can with that concept of confession. It is too often, not always, but too often been used by some people in, in hierarchy and high positions of power in the church uh, to hold over the heads of those with less power than they. Preying upon guilt-stricken consciences that we all have to varying degrees and at varying times in our lives. And that's not right. But what I wanna tell you today is, uh, well, first of all, I wanna give you another definition of confession, perhaps than what first pops up in our minds, because I imagine you, once again, I'm gonna make an assumption, you like me, first, when you hear that word confession, you think, ah, confession, spewing forth your own faults, your darkest hidden secrets, your shadows, your skeletons in your closet to another person. That's a, that's a packed terminology, but can you relate? Do you have that kind of feeling, more or less? The real nature of confession, including uh, the, the Latin root from which we get the word confess, just means to acknowledge. Oh, that's a load off. If that's what it means, that's much lighter to acknowledge, which is to say to come to terms with the truth. 
And I would tell you for that matter that when you look at the, the scriptures and their original languages, the terms in Hebrew and in Greek that most often get translated as confess mean much the same thing, to acknowledge. The Hebrew term uh, yada means to acknowledge. It might perhaps even be related to a root having to do with throw, as in to throw out there in the open. To acknowledge this is the reality. Let's be honest about it. Uh, you find great examples, in fact, of this term confess being connected not just with airing your own personal faults, that's something we all have to come to terms with at one point or another in our lives, but, but also confessing the nature of the reality of God. One such example uh, comes to us from Genesis 29, verse 35. Leah, uh, in her pregnancy with Judah, the text tells us Leah became pregnant again, gave birth to a son, and then she said, now I will confess the Lord. Now, most translations, that will be rendered as, I will praise the Lord, or I will thank the Lord. You might see those two variations. But you could just as well translate that verb there, I will confess the Lord. In other words, she's acknowledging the Lord is the one who gave her this son. And she continues, for this reason, she named him Judah, a name well known to us. But did you know that the name Judah comes from that same root, Yada, it's Yehuda, his name in Hebrew, and it means confession, acknowledgement, or if you like, praise, thanksgiving. And how fitting that this son of Leah's would be named confession, not only regarding the circumstances of his birth, but also given how his life played out. Judah is this fantastically complex character in uh, the story of Genesis as a whole. And among these 12 sons of Jacob, it is Judah who is put forth as an example of confession. His life is messy, and he's relatable for that reason but he stands as an exemplar of one who confesses, who, who acknowledges the wrong he has done more than once in the book of Genesis. Uh, later on, Psalm 32, verse 4. Psalm 32, by the way, is a fantastic exemplary psalm about the nature of confession. But I want you to notice, if you, if you take the time to read Psalm 32 on your own, Notice that this is not even a song about confession to other people. It is ultimately the psalmist's confession to God, coming to terms with reality, not hiding anything with the one from whom you could hide nothing anyway. And the psalmist says in verse 4, my wrongdoing I acknowledge, and my evil I do not conceal. Remember, this is spoken to God, at least as the chief audience. I said, I will confess my rebellious acts to the Lord, and you, you have forgiven my evil wrongdoing. And there is a cleansing of conscience in that fantastic psalm. It should be an encouragement to all of us, and I, I encourage all of you to lay that psalm aside, write yourself a note, and keep that in stock for times when you need that sort of purging within your private life, between you and God. If we turn to the Greek, uh, the Greek term that often gets translated as confess is homologeo, which ultimately amounts to saying to say the same thing, which communicates the idea to say the same thing as the reality that is out there. And just like the Hebrew terminology that can be translated confess, 
uh, it can be understood in a number of ways, not just in terms of airing our faults. So one very famous example comes from the very opening chapter of the Gospel according to John. And this one regards the testimony of John the Baptist. The text there, uh, beginning in verse 19 of John chapter 1 says, Now this is John's testimony. When the Jews from Jerusalem sent to him priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? He confessed. He did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Notice the nature of that confession on John's part. In this particular instance, it's not an admission of guilt, not to say that he was guiltless, but the more pertinent thing to say in this, in this environment was to acknowledge upon introspection, as much as I might be a prophet of God, I must confess, I must acknowledge reality, I'm not the anointed one of God. And so this was John's good confession. So the first thing I, I want to impress upon all of you as we crack open this, this spiritual discipline in your series, this spiritual discipline of confession is that at its core, the most important thing to take away from it, confession is calling it like it is. And often enough, the hurdle is not even calling it like it is concerning our own sins, our own wrongdoings and wrong motivations, and telling those to others, often enough, the biggest hurdle is acknowledging that to ourselves. The psychiatrist Carl Jung, beginning of the 20th century, uh, made very famous the, the, the concept of how we go about our lives, all of us really, in our own special ways, our own unique ways, carrying masks something that he called a persona, based on a, a Latin term for a mask that the stage actors would wear. And we, we grow up, starting in early childhood, getting accustomed to the mask that is fitted to us. This is the mask that we wear, really not for our most genuine selves, but for the sake of our society at its varying levels. The household, our church, our place of work, our schools, all of this. We learn to wear a mask. The mask is, is what is accepted by those around us. And there's a lot of natural logic to this, okay? Part of learning to wear the mask is to put aside our selfish impulses for the sake of the greater society. But in that process, sometimes we learn to shelve things and not be honest about these parts of ourselves that are still there. This is what Jung referred to as the shadow self. And though the world has moved on from a number of Jung's theories and, and Psychiatry as a field of study, it continues to, to grow. Uh, nevertheless, the, these ideas of persona and shadow self have continued. What we acknowledge or what we don't acknowledge about ourselves. And sometimes, as I'm sure many of you, if you think about it secretly, like I said, I promise, I won't make you confess today to each other. But you might, if you dig deep enough and sit in silence with yourself, start to see those uncomfortable sectors of your inner self that you don't want to own. But God knows them already. And God loves you in full knowledge of all of that. Honestly, we shouldn't have been surprised by Jung's terms either because Jesus had his own version of the same thing. For Jesus, it was when he addressed the crowds as hypocrites on occasion. Hypocrite is a term in Greek that basically means persona. It's those who learn to recite 
in the theater under a mask. In other words, what Jesus was trying to target as a need of his audience was to put away the mask and be genuine. But often enough, as Jesus himself said, the place that that begins is in private with your father who sees what is in secret. This is where true confession, I would dare to say, begins. Owning reality about ourselves and before God in those private moments. Maybe you've had some of those experiences yourself where you have that internal unpacking and you can breathe a sigh of relief. Maybe you're in the midst of, of a prayer time. Maybe, for me at least, I'll, I'll confess, uh, it has happened sometimes late at night when I'm in, my prayers are bleeding into my thoughts so that the two are not quite distinct. But what does it matter? God already knows all of my inner thoughts. And in a moment, as some of the formulaic language rituals I've grown up with to teach me prayer, they fall away, and it all becomes more real for a brief moment sometimes. But it's, it's a blissful moment. Because I'm reminded of, of the God who already knows everything about me. And at least for once, I'm starting to own it for myself. But I want to address today a text that probably has given us, more than any other text in the Bible, this concept of confession being strictly connected with what we say to each other. And that is, uh, it comes from James chapter 5. And so, yeah, thank you. If we can have that on the screen, you'll start to recognize this passage very well, I think. James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let them pray. Is anyone in good spirits? Let them sing. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the assembly that they might pray over them, treating them with oil in the Lord's name. Then the prayer that is in trust will rescue the one who is ill, and the Lord will give them recovery. Even if they have committed wrongs, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your wrongs to each other. There it is, right? That's the passage. Confess your wrongs to each other and pray for each other that you may be cured. A just person's prayer is very powerful and effective. Elijah was a person with the same nature that we have, but he asked in prayer that it not rain, and it did not rain upon the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky produced rain, and the earth yielded its fruit. So here's the famous passage, right? The one that gives us that line, and this is the line that we've internalized perhaps the most regarding confession, if only because it's the one we wince at. Confess your wrongs, or in your translations you might have, confess your sins to each other. But for today's purposes, I want to camp out with this passage and try to understand it better in its fuller context. Have you noticed, as, as we read through these verses, what the larger theme is? I mean, think for yourselves. If you were reading the, the whole passage here, would it come across to you as church, take a big gulp, and air all of your wrongs to each other? <laughs> Don't hide anything. That passage doesn't sound like that in general, does it? But what's the bigger theme? I hope you're seeing it for yourselves. Largely, James' concern here is, are you sick? 
Are you in need of healing? Here are a number of ways James is advising the church to deal with such sickness because ultimately his concern is not to put forth a stodgy rule that people will quake and quiver over. Oh, I've got I've to come up with a doozy <laughs> and share that with everybody. No, his bigger concern here is if you need healing, I want you to get healing. And so one of the first ways that he tells the church how to do this is if any of you are sick, I'll remind you again, if any of you are sick, uh, let such a person call on the elders. The elders will come, will, I, I put it in my translation, treat the person with oil. Many of your translations might have anoint with oil. One reason why it might be best to change the terminology there is anointing with oil for us is largely connected with the religious ritual, the anointing of kings, for example, in ancient Israel. Uh, but anointing had many various properties in the ancient Mediterranean world. One of them, to be sure, was the anointing of kings, symbolic of the coming of God's spirit upon uh, this royal. Uh, but people would anoint themselves in a way that we might say is equivalent to shampooing, right? putting on perfume. In other words, anointment with oils was just a way of making yourself not smell terrible. That was one kind of anointing. And it was a day-to-day -day sort of practice. Another kind of anointing, like the one that you see here in James chapter 5, is really about medicinal use of oil. You'll see a similar example in uh, Jesus' famous story of the Samaritan who was a neighbor to his fellow who fell on the road, right? And he anointed his wounds with oil and with wine, okay? So really what James is getting to in, in this passage is, are, are any of you, my fellow Christians, sick right now? Call over the elders, let them pray for you and anoint you. In other words, that's kind of like James saying, you know what, it is okay to pray to God and seek help through medicine as well. God gave you that too, okay? So that's James' larger concern. But he, he also gets into this idea that there might be more to that. There might, you might need to unpack a little bit more to seek healing. Now part of this we have to understand in James's world and the world of the early church had to do with the, the way that many people in these cultures around the Mediterranean perceived things like sickness. When we get sick, I think I'm gonna assume again, for most of you like myself, you, you don't necessarily think, ooh, what evil have I done? <laughs> Your first impression is, okay, let's see if I can discern what the symptoms are telling me about what I have and if it's severe enough, go seek medical help from, from a physician. But in the world of James and the early church, their cultural understanding moved in a different direction. If you are sick, it might be a sign from God that you've done something wrong. Paul has a similar sort of interpretational scheme in 1 Corinthians 11, when he talks about how the church there in Corinth was abusing the practice of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, and for this reason, he says, some of you have become sick and some have even fallen asleep, meaning have died. It's also the same kind of mentality that informs Job's friends in that famous book of the Old Testament when they approach Job, and for the first seven days, they do what one should do, when a friend is going through misery, they sit with him in silence and bear that misery with him. But when they begin to talk, they, they reveal their thought process. Job, clearly you have lost so much, all these catastrophes have happened in your life, and now you're even 
sick with some terrible disease that affects your skin, what have you done wrong? That's their manner of thinking. Job's true confession in that book, here's that real sense of confession, by the way, right? Is not to say, oh, you're right, here's my laundry list of sins. His confession, in the truest sense of confession, acknowledgement of reality, is to say, I have not done something to be deserving of this. And he holds that true confession. That's confession. So, I want you to understand that in James' text here, he is chiefly concerned with saying to his church audience, what do you need healing from? Let's solve that together. Get the elders involved as we might need to. But let's solve this as best we can. We'll anoint you with those medicinal oils. We'll pray with you. And if you need to air something that you might connect in your mind at least with the cause of your physical suffering, let's, let's air that to each other and we will pray for each other. Because as he concludes in that thought, the prayer of a just person is very effective. Now, this leaves me with a question, okay? And if you wouldn't mind uh, going on to the next slide here. Okay. Confession breaks the cycle of sickness. This is what James is ultimately getting at. Let's break the sickness. Let's find healing. But who is this just kind of person, this righteous person, whose prayer would be effective? Now, he gives the example of Elijah as one case in point, but Elijah's so far removed, even from their context, being hundreds of years earlier. And so he's already frozen solid in history. What good does that do us? But who's my Elijah? <laughs> Where's my Elijah who can pray for me in such an effective way that the healing that I need comes to me from God? Well, I think James gives us a good clue earlier in this same letter. In James chapter 5 again, same chapter, beginning in verse 1. Come now, you wealthy, cry and wail over your approaching misery. Your wealth has decayed and your clothing has become eaten by moths. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust shall be evidence against you and consume your flesh like fire. You have hoarded in the final days. Notice how the wages of your workers who have harvested your fields, wages that have been withheld by you, cries out. And the outcry of your reapers has entered the ears of the Lord Sabaoth. You have lived in luxury and pleasure on the earth. You have fattened up your insides on slaughtering day. You have judged others. You have murdered the just. They do not fight back against you. Now, it's that final line in particular that gives us the clue of what James is getting at. And it brings us full cycle back to the very thing that makes us so fearful, I think, about confession in the first place. The fact that it has, at various times in church history, been used by the powerful over against those who are in less power. But notice that there are two distinct groups that are portrayed by James here. You have those who are in power and wealth, who are misusing such wealth to abuse others. And then you have the just, the same kind of group that he mentioned in the first text we dealt with, being those who are taken advantage of by the powerful. And between the two groups, if you were to confess, which is to say acknowledge your sins, your wrongs to another. Of these two groups, with whom would you rather do that? The rich, the powerful, or the just as described here? 
Now, unfortunately, just like any word, anybody can use it. Anybody can use the word grace for that matter. But in James's definition of just, what it is to be just, you have an example of a life that I could trust. I would much rather air my personal wrongs if I was going to do it with anybody. I would much rather do it with this kind of a just person whom James described, the one who might even be murdered, but at the very least taken advantage of by others, and yet they are intent not to take advantage themselves. And they will not fight back. I can trust such a person. Such a person is deserving of my confession to her or to him. So we've answered that idea, okay, who is a just? Now, this next question comes up. And if you wouldn't mind going on to the next one, okay? We want to come back to that idea of sickness. Why, why sickness being connected with confession? Well, we've already started to answer this, right? We've talked about how confession uh, in, in the minds of these ancient people, especially if they think of their sicknesses as being possibly tied with something wrong they've done, like we see in the mindset of Job's friends. Um, but what do we do with that in today's world? And so we're getting close to the, to the end here. I want us to take a look of all places. Uh, it's, it is my field. In the Old Testament, okay, to illustrate, once again, this kind of mentality. But in today's reading, and if you, you can go ahead and turn there, Leviticus 26, we're going to be looking at. I want you to read with me today with the mindset, what does this say about, about the people themselves, aside from the concept that this is God telling them, dictating this stuff to them, but, but imagine yourself in the, their position with their kind of worldview, and yet even in our, our worldview today, this might not be too far off. When we feel guilt in ourselves that we have not really come to terms with, See if you don't feel somewhat like what's being described here. If you do not listen to me or practice all these commands, if you reject my statutes and if your very being detests my just laws so that you do not practice all my commands and you break my covenant, then even I will do this to you. I will appoint against you consumption and fever, failing eyes and fading life. You shall sow your seed for nothing and your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you shall flee when no one is chasing you. And they will confess, so this is the later state of God's people Israel, when they've experienced all these tragedies, they will eventually confess their evil and the evil of their ancestors in their rebellion that they committed against me, even that they walked in opposition to me. I myself even walked in opposition to them, taking them into the land of their enemies. But then their uncircumcised heart will be humbled. Then they will be pleased with their punishment. I imagine if you're following along in your translations, it might not say that, but that's what the Hebrew actually says. They will be pleased with their punishment. And I will remember the covenant of Jacob, even the covenant of Isaac and the covenant of Abraham, I will remember, and I will remember the land. The land shall be abandoned by them and will be pleased, same construction, will be pleased with its Sabbaths when it is deserted by them. And they, they will be pleased with their punishment, all because they rejected my just laws. My statutes, their very being detested, yet for all this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not have rejected them. 
nor will I detest them so as to finish them off, thus breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. I will remember for their sake the covenant of the first generations whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the eyes of the nations in order to be their God. I am the Lord. I hope maybe you felt a sense of it in today's reading with that perspective I invited you to take on. Have you in your life, remember, I'm not going to have you confess this out before any of us today, but have you personally at any point when you have been harboring something you feel guilty about, at the very least because you haven't fully been honest with yourself about it, and therefore have not really been honest before God who sees what is done in secret, and in those times when you've harbored that secrecy and not been genuine with yourself, have you not felt something like this? Even like when you're, you're walking down, in, down a road on a typical day where pe other people might say, oh, what a lovely day, and sun is shining, everything feels great, and yet for you, you feel haunted by every shadow of a tree. Every rustling leaf feels like somebody dogging your steps. And I would suggest to you that whether you're coming from their ancient perspective or some, something a little more akin to what we might feel in our cultural context that we all have versions of this universally. We all have ways in which, if we haven't dealt with it, we're going to be haunted by it. And so I want to close with another small passage from James to remind us of the spirit that allows us to confess to each other. This is a well-known passage, of course. Speak and act in this way like those who are going to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to the one who does not practice mercy. Mercy has bragging rights over judgment. That is to say, the true spirit of confession fits with a law of liberty because it is, in fact, free. And I know, I think on a, a typical Sunday, you have an opportunity just now, if you want, you can... It's an invitation time, right? If you have something you want to confess to one of the leaders of the church here, feel welcome to do that. But if anything, based on the message today, that might not be the best thing. At the very least, what I would encourage you to do is take those introspective moments, sit in silence once in a while with yourself, see how uncomfortable that might feel at first. But ultimately, if we start to own reality, both within ourselves and out there in the world, it doesn't end up being fearful, but it ends up being a freeing thing.